Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. There may or may not have been greater hitters than the Red Sox great Ted Williams, but there was never a hitter anything like Ted Williams. There was never a hitter whose approach was anything like Ted Williams. And there was never a hitter who was the kind of tortured and self-torturing Promethean genius about hitting that Ted Williams was. And this is the show that we did about him. It is apropos of a special look at Ted Williams that you can stream at pbs.org. And I would recommend that you do. It's a terrific portrait of him. But here is the baseball season is getting going. We thought it would be nice to revisit what was a very, very enjoyable conversation. And for me, a very personal conversation because my grand mother was very much a priestess in the cult of Ted the Kid. So here we go. All right, we're here today to talk about Ted Williams. I ask you not to be intimidated by this topic if you're not a sports fan. You don't need to be a sports fan to understand this. Ted Williams kind of fits in certain ways into in the category of people like Glenn Gold and Bobby Fischer, people who were geniuses at what they did in a way that made it difficult for them to inhabit the rest of the world, but they also could not successfully inhabit the world in which they were geniuses. And if you find that level of torment kind of interesting, then you don't have to care that much about baseball to understand or to be fascinated by Ted Williams. So some of this quick point of host privilege. So when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time in my grandmother's apartment, a walk-up apartment in Plainville, Connecticut. She had in place of where a, say, Catholic family would have a votive statue. She had a statue of Ted Williams. And Ted Williams, I think it is fair to say, was her Jesus. Uh, And this is not an unusual phenomenon in New England. There was a way in which, particularly for little old ladies in in New England, you know, would sit on the porches of their houses in Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont and Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island, sometimes even keeping score on a yellow pad, listening to the games on the radio. Ted Williams was so much more than just a baseball player. But, I mean, he emphatically was a very, very fascinating baseball player. And my grandmother and I shared that. So there was a time in 1970-71, somewhere in there, where the Red Sox announced the greatest Red Sox team ever would be honored. And Ted was managing, and they scheduled it for a day when he would be in town as a manager for either the Senators or the Rangers. I've now forgotten. And he was going to be honored, obviously, as the greatest Red Sox player ever. And so I went to the game with my grandmother and my mother, and I took my copy of My Turn at Bat, Ted's memoir, co-written with John Underwood, down to the rail, and there was Ted, and I got him to sign it. And I went back up. And my grandmother kind of couldn't absorb, I think, the fact that I had, I, a mortal, had stood before Ted Williams. <laughs> it was like I said, look, I just got this thing from Hercules. I thought you'd like to see it or something. She was like, no, I just, she talked about it that way for the rest of her life. I'm here with uh, Nick Davis, who uh, made this documentary, Ted Williams, quote, the greatest hitter who ever lived, close quote, that you can stream at pbs.org. And I would recommend that you do. It's a terrific portrait of him. But so, Nick, you come to this uh, not as a Red Sox fan, but a, as a Mets fan. But I, I think you've very quickly grasped the specialness 
of Ted Williams. And I think there's like a lot of ways in which he's kind of sui generis. Maybe, I don't know, pick your favorite one. I've got five I want to ask. Well, there are so many incredible aspects to his life. I mean, the obsession, though, I think is what I keyed into really quickly. It's just like, wow, this guy had, he had this ability, but he worked and worked and worked so hard at it. I think as a I mean, I'm a very passionate baseball fan, Mm -hmm. but I didn't do deep study on Ted Williams until I came to this project. And so my assumption was, oh, yeah, Ted Williams, greatest natural hitter who ever lived. Natural. Yes, he had Mm -hmm. tremendous natural gifts, but his the effort that he put in was just off the charts. All right. To that uh, point, uh, let's hear a little clip from Nick's documentary. He was like a Bengal tiger, this beautiful animal that was so captivating, but dangerous at the same time. If I had met Jesus Christ himself, I couldn't have been more overwhelmed. It was like being in the presence of a deity. He was almost a godlike figure. He's a baseball god. He really studied his game. He was a master at it. They loved putting on a show. To look at, he was gorgeous. He was a beauty to watch. He loved his swing. He had a beautiful swing. His swing was a work of art. His bat being the brush and Fenway Park is the canvas. What he said himself was that his only desire was to walk down the street and have people say, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. He took that one aspect of baseball and perfected it. Baseball holds out the possibility of perfection and keep hitting, the game never ends. So it's out there. He was so focused on what he wanted to do and it was to the exclusion of everything else. He was obsessed with hitting. Everything about him is interesting in this gnarled, difficult way. I mean, he was that way himself. What's the matter with him? What are you constantly asking about that? What's wrong with this guy? What a weirdo. What a great hitter. That's the voice of the great baseball writer, Roger, well, and so much more. Roger Angel that you hear at the end there is Wade Boggs is the one who's saying the thing about the brush and the canvas, which I thought was very good. <laughs> and I didn't know Wade Boggs had that in him either. So um, <laughs> Neither did I. Yeah. He, he was amazing. Yeah. Boggs was great. Right. And, and Joey Votto right before He's him. He's terrific. Isn't he great? He's amazing. Yeah. I, you know, I feel like I know a lot about Ted Williams. I and mean, Ted Williams is, as you can see, in my blood. But I really didn't know anything about Ted Williams in a way because – I never quite understood the really primal beginnings of his brokenness. This is one of the things that I think really jumps out in this documentary that you describe. um, It's almost like Citizen Kane or something, you know, having the sled, spoiler, rested, you know, I mean, being torn away. There's like a way in which he's broken right at the beginning. Maybe you can say a little bit about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. He came from a really unhappy childhood and he never talked about it. He didn't talk about it with his children. He didn't talk about it with his wives. He didn't talk about it with anyone. But clearly, it drove him. And he was born into poverty in San Diego. His father was a ne'er do well and a drunk. His mother worked for the Salvation Army, and she was out all day long into the wee hours of the night uh, saving souls, but not the souls of her own two sons, who were kind of the first latchkey kids. And Ted felt abandoned and then on top of that had to suffer with the then indignity of the fact that his mother was Mexican-American. And so there was just this deep shame 
and, you know, rage that came from that that drove him throughout his life. You know, the the Mexican part of it was very fascinating to me. If I had known that before, I, it slipped out of my mind or maybe it just was not commonly known. It, exactly. Me too. I had this sort of vague notion as a, a baseball fan, like, oh, yeah, Ted, Mexican, uh, maybe part Mexican or whatever. But when you really get into it, you, you see that it was there all along. You know, we spoke to one of his cousins, Frank Venzor, and you look at Frank Venzor and think, well, that's a Mexican guy. And mm-hmm. Ted was quoted as saying, if I'd looked like my brother later in life, he said, if I'd looked like my brother, I never would have played the major leagues. So there was, you know, it was this was pre-1947, obviously. It's before Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. So Ted wants nothing to do with his Mexican relatives. There's a story where he comes into the train station at the end of his, uh, I think it's his final minor league season, and he sees waiting for him all his relatives. And as Ben Bradley in the film describes it, the great biographer of Ted, the book The Kid, he says, you know, Ted took one look at this motley crew of Mexicans and hightailed it in the other direction. And he wanted nothing to do with them. And Frank Venzer tells the story, too. He, he's laughing. I mean, like he just didn't want anything to do with us. Right. And just to tear one or two more stitches out of this primal wound, too. So you have this uh, mother who's not only away all day, but sometimes away for like two and a half days, right? Leaving yeah. kids alone while she goes and saves souls uh, as a full-time Salvation Army worker. Uh, his dad is on the road a lot and a drunk. Um, and um, you describe how when the major leagues came calling, they became very, very interested in getting together around the subject of his contract. Well, Ted's father. Ted's father came back for a brief time and sort of oversaw the contract and and made sure that, that he got some of the bonus and then went back to wherever it was that he was. And so neither one of them ever saw him play professional baseball? It, it, it appears, and, and John Thorne, the baseball you know, official historian for Major League Baseball, tells us that his parents never saw him play a game of Major League Baseball. On their behalf, I will say, you know, they're in San Diego, he's in Boston, it's an awfully long train trip, but mm. still. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I just feel like other parents probably would have made that trip. But um, so, and you know, what you get is, and I don't want to like DSM-5 this guy, but there is something called borderline personality disorder where people who have that diagnosis often can't really m- modulate between a slight and a profound wound. Yeah. Williams seems like that guy very early on. In, in the documentary, they talk about, you know, by, the, by his second season, after this prodigious rookie year, by his second season, anytime he seemed kind of normal, there might be, you know, 100 people out of 25,000 people booing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that was more than he could stand. Yeah, he, he, he would seize upon any slight. It's interesting. I, it's a great question because I don't know whether that's, being overly sensitive or Ted knowing himself and knowing that he hits better mad. Mm-hmm. And so sort of almost like, you know, picking it a scab intentionally so that he can it can drive him to even greater performance. Right. But he decides that I think in that second season. Yeah, I'm never going to I'm not going to tip my he's cap. He's not going to tip his cap to the crowd. No, if USOBs are going to boo me, you don't get to I'm going to give it right back. Also, at that time, he completely I mean, there's a lot of athletes who don't like the press, but this goes into a different area. I mean, and there's a lot of athletes who their way of solving that problem is to never speak to the press again. Ted, I got the feeling, didn't exactly do that. (laughs) Once again, maybe he just thought, 
I'm better off just openly hating these people. It'll fuel me. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have a public persona. You know, he just what you saw was what you got Mm -hmm. with Ted. And so he'd be angry at the press and he'd tell them so. And and they'd write nasty stories about him and it would go back and forth like that. But no, he didn't he didn't try to hide from them or or pretend he liked them. So. One of the things you and I were talking about before we went on the air. So my turn at bat, which is he has a co-writer on this, and I read it like five times or something as a young person. He takes all of that or he and his co-writer take all of that. And it's really kind of a funny book in a lot of places. And there's one story that I that stayed with me. I haven't read the book in years. But as you point out in the documentary, he often preferred the company of like firefighters and cops and people like that to or the clubhouse manager, Johnny Orlando, to his fellow baseball players or anyone else. And there's a, a moment where he's in the book where he's, he's had a bad day and he's furious and the crowd's maybe been on him and he's throwing his stuff into the locker. And in the presence of the press, he says, screw it. I'm just going to go be a fireman. And they, of course, take it and run with it. Yeah. And they've got all these headlines. And he goes, and I think he plays in Chicago. That's the next place he plays. And as he steps up to the plate, sirens go off. <laughs> and like out in center field, they've given free seats to the entire Chicago fire department. They all put their helmets on, you know, and it's all this stuff. And they're ringing bells and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think actually some of the players like in the dugout from Chicago are ringing fire bells and stuff. And it's all, you know, there's this thin-skinned guy, so what can we do to him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think he did have a good sense of humor and and a decent sense of humor about himself. There's another great story that we just didn't have time for where maybe you know this one, the Pedro Ramos story, this rookie pitcher for the Washington Senators strikes him out and then after the game goes into the Red Sox clubhouse and asks Ted Williams to sign a ball. And Williams is, he can't believe it. But, you know, the other Red Sox players are kind of laughing, and Williams is like, all right, he signs the ball, hands it back to the kid. Sure enough, three or four weeks later, the Senators are playing the Red Sox again. Williams, facing Ramos, hits a prodigious home run deep into the stands. And as he's rounding first base, he tells Ramos, "You can, I'll sign that son of a bitch, too, if you can find it. <laughs> and I'm sure that wasn't the only expletive that he probably used. Probably the points that you make in the film is that he could string swear words together in a more creative way than almost anybody. Yeah. So I want to play another clip here This because this sort of gets to some of the things we're talking about. There is a way in which the more you watch him, the more he does strike you as lonely. And lonely, I don't know, Updike in his famous piece about Williams compares him to Achilles. You know, there's mm. sort of a sense in which he's sulking in his tent a lot of the time, but he's sulking alone. So let's just hear a little bit more from the documentary. I think he was lonely. I, I think that he had a difficulty in making attachments. There were certain teammates that he was close to, but he seemed to be more comfortable with regular guys, cops, firemen, clubhouse boys. Maybe in any relationship like that, he would be the dominant figure and maybe therefore more comfortable. When his first child arrived, Ted was off fishing in Florida. And when sports writers talked to him about it, he was not happy to talk about it. He said he'd planned to be there, but the baby came two or three weeks early. And he said he couldn't get a flight back, which was probably, which was probably uh, baloney. He took a lot of heat for that, but he was Ted Williams. He was going to do things his way. It was sort of symbolic of Ted's domestic relations that that happened. Ted was <laughs> certainly uh, couldn't have been easy to be married to. He was this great star, and he took full advantage of the privilege of being a star. 
Ted and his first wife had a messy divorce in which Williams, trying to lower the alimony, threatened to retire from baseball. We missed the first few months of the season. And then as soon as he reached a settlement with his wife, unretired and came back. Hearing from the documentary Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived, I'm here with uh, Nick Davis, who uh, made this documentary. You know, listening to all that and, and the other stuff, the spitting at the fans and, you know, Williams really was an anti-hero before that term was in circulation. Yeah, I mean, he was huge and larger than life and was such an icon of the game, but he would not have been a representative of the game in any kind of, like, you know, public way. You know, he wasn't DiMaggio, the beloved, the great DiMaggio Hemingway wrote about. So, I mean, and in some ways, the, the relationship between Joe and Ted was is so interesting, and we go into it in the documentary a little bit, because... Joe did have an image that he had to live up to. Or, or, or you know, he curated it. He, he curated it, right, exactly. He was a curator of his own image, and, and his sister-in-law tells us that, that he ironed his own underwear. But, you know, Ted just let it all hang out and, and was not that way. So he wasn't going to be nice for the sake of the game. The other thing that Williams has, despite everything that we're just saying, so he's sort of an anti-hero. He's a guy who doesn't really know or care to curate his own public image. But he also has, I think maybe it's a product of that intensity and the sort of a Hecalean quality, if we're going to go with that, a flair for the dramatic. You know, there's just a way in which there's certain things that he does, probably. And so you you have never before seen in this documentary, you have color footage of this the last swing he ever took as a major league player. It was the occasion for a fabulous John Updike essay in The New Yorker. But you got this somehow. Right? Yeah, I'm incredible kismet and luck. Ted's last game has become so mythical in large part, I think, because of Updike's piece, Hub fans bid kid adieu. And everybody wanted it. Everybody wanted him to hit a home run. There were only 10,000 fans at the, at the game that day, but Ted delivered. But so this is this mythical moment in baseball history. And, you know, we've been working on this film for over two years and had got all the footage from everybody. And there's this, you know, black and white footage that everybody's seen a million times. And it's OK. It's good. But on the, the day before we finished the film, we locked the film, locked mm. the picture, I got an email out of the blue just to my info at, you know, Nick Davis Productions email address from a guy in Boston who had been, I think, a 19-year-old art student who cut school that day, took his 8-millimeter camera. Marty Zapruder, actually. It was <laughs> Abraham's grandson. <laughs> right. No, it was even before Abe. Right. 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 So, right. And uh, this guy, Bill Murphy, who took his camera out to Fenway and incredibly walked around and got every at-bat from a different angle of Ted's last game. Incredible raw color footage that brings the whole day to life in an incredible way. And then you had it developed, showed it to some friends and family, and then stuck in a drawer for over 50 years. And every once in a while, he would wake up and think, geez, in the middle of the night, I, I got to do something with this. But he never did anything. And then finally, just total serendipity, he emailed us the day before we locked footage and said, oh, I've had this footage lying in a drawer. Would this be of interest to you? I was like, would this be of interest? It's the holy grail. Yes, it would be of interest. Send it on. So we pushed our schedule back and got the footage. It's incredible. And it and it gives such drama, even more drama to that day to have this footage bring everything to life. 
You also have uh, is it Jack Fisher? Is that his name? Uh, Jack the, Fisher, the the, the pitcher the, who, who faced him. Yeah, I mean, I always think I remember when uh, Vic Wirtz died. Mm-hmm. It said Vic Wirtz, man who hit ball, maze caught. <laughs> you know, and and these guys who are on the wrong end of of history. You know, Buckner. Uh, you know, it's 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 always very interesting. He was totally delightful and mm-hmm. and happy. He's, to, he's he's wonderful to talk to and. Says, you know, as he was driving to the going out to Fenway that day, it was rainy, it was drizzly, it was not a good day for baseball. And he's just he just sort of embodies old time baseball and and tells the story of of being on the mound and and pitching and giving up the home run. He has this nice perspective too. I mean, visual perspective because okay, so Williams hits a home run in his final at bat. And bear in mind, if you're just kind of tuning into the Ted Williams story, Ted Williams has this fractious and fractured relation, permanently fractured relationship with the fans. And he's just cavorting around the bases. This tremendous uptick has this great description of just him rounding the bases like he's almost floating or something. And and everybody's thinking, well, now he's going to tip his cap and he just runs into the dugout and nothing happens. And and Jack, Jack says... Yeah, and, Fisher, yeah. and Fisher's on the mound and even he thinks the guy's got to come out and take a curtain call or something. And uh, he takes his time. He picks up the rosin bag. He's just sort of wasting time. And he looks in the dugout, and Williams waves at him and says, no, I'm not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and, is, I mean, at this point, the umpires and the players Yeah, are everyone is beseeching him. him. Come on, let's go. But as Updike famously wrote, gods do not answer letters. Right. And, and I mean, it's an interesting thing, too, because, I mean, another part of – one of the other stories that you tell, and I think we'll get to it a little bit more in the next segment, but, you know, those last two games, the year that he hit 400, you start with a description of the fact that, so here's this incredibly tense day. Is this guy going to be able to hit 400? And the umpire is brushing off the plate, and he's, like, talking to William, saying, you're going to have to be loose. If you want to hit 400, you have to going to have to be loose. Umpires typically do not give advice, <laughs> you know, particularly in the presence of the other team's catcher. And so here's this notion of this guy who's so hard to like in some ways, but yeah. I think people also kind of appreciate the quest he's on. Well, the respect that he earned. Mm-hmm. Uh, at another point, Jim Cott tells us that, you know, when you were facing Williams, you know, anything close, if he took it, the umpire's going to call it a ball because mm-hmm. if Ted yeah. took it, it must be a ball. Right. I mean, he he engendered this this respect and awe and admiration from the other players as difficult and as prickly – and the umpire, clearly, mm-hmm. as prickly as he must have been. So, yeah, you know, umpire Bill McGowan says, you know, in order to hit 400, a man has got to be loose. He's <laughs> got to be loose. So my least favorite thing to talk about in connection with Ted Williams is the mm-hmm. whole cryonics part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and although it does fit with the notion of immortality, if we're going to talk about sort of godlike beings and stuff like that. But uh, we should say something about this anyway, because in a weird way, it's the only thing baseball fans do know about him. Isn't he the guy who got frozen? Yeah. I mean, non-baseball fans, absolutely. It's like that's the one thing they remember. And it is. It's unfortunate, but there is something kind of fitting about it because it's weird and and gnarled just like his life was. Mm. Um, you know, for me, th- we have a PBS hour to tell the story of this man and his life and what drove him. So what happens to him after his life ends, it's not actually that relevant, mm-hmm. um, except for why in the world did he agree to do this? And Claudia Williams his daughter, who's incredibly eloquent mm-hmm. and, and articulate. She's and, wonderful. Yeah, and also you feel, what I like best about Claudia is you feel him in her interview. You sort of get the sense of like, what an interesting, complicated man he was mm-hmm. just by just seeing it in her eyes. Yeah. Um, and, well, first of all, she, once I went to her, obviously a key interview for us was getting her, and I told her, look, 
she was so burned mm. for pardon the pun, mm. but at, by the whole freezing thing and yeah. what happened after he died, and there was such controversy, and and she felt her family had just been absolutely raked over the coals. Her and her brother John Henry that she didn't want to have anything to do with the press. And it was only when I said to her, look, we're really only interested in finding out what made this man tick and who he was as a person and telling that story. We we don't have time to get into the controversy. It's fascinating. It could be its own hour or or more, a feature film, what happened to Ted Williams' body. But it's not that's not what the film's about. So she consented to be interviewed and then gave a wonderful interview and explained that the reason he said, oh, okay, fine, he it's not like he believed in it, but he thought, look, I see what this is doing. The fact of my mortality is making my kids so upset. I was a terrible father. So I want to make it up to them if this is something that really means a lot to them. Hell, I don't know. I mean, a thousand years ago, we didn't have, a, a, you know, a device that could, you know, communicate across the globe with other people and have all the information the world's ever had on it. So maybe it'll happen. Who knows? Why not? I'll right. do it. Maybe I can be a great dead father. Um, <laughs> exactly. All right. We have to take a break here. Okay. Uh, we want to talk a little bit more. We're going to get down to baseball brass tacks even more when we get back. We'll also be talking about Moxie, the great New England beverage associated with him at the end of the show. Right off his cleats, the roaring crowd comes to its feet. The pitcher's knees are getting weak. Then the announcer begins to speak. It's number nine for the Boston Red Sox. The splendid splinter steps into the box. Ted Williams in his entire major league career, when you count hits and walks, was on base more than any other player in baseball history. I'll look at his career numbers. He's just so clearly better than everybody, save Babe Ruth. There's Babe and there's Ted like neck and neck, and then everybody is so far. It's not even close. He is the greatest hitter that ever lived. It's not even an argument. This is the voices of Dick Enberg, Joey Votto, and Wade Boggs, uh, all in Nick Davis's documentary, Ted Williams, The Greatest Hitter Who Ever Lived, that you can stream at pbs.org. So we want to investigate that whole question right now. And joining us to help out is Sam Miller, a national baseball writer at ESPN. He's joining us by Skype. Sam Miller, are you with us? I am. How are you doing? Good. So, you know, as Nick's documentary points out, well, I mean, you're hearing Wade Boggs say there's no argument about this. I think Nick's documentary is a little bit more ambivalent about this. There's no question that that's what Ted Williams set out to do. That was the grail he'd set up for himself. As somebody looking at it dispassionately, how do you, how do you, close do you feel that he came? Well, I think that as far as hitting specifically, there's only three names that you could possibly consider, and those names are Babe Ruth and Barry Bonds and Ted Williams. And Ruth is a little bit of a complicated case just because of when he came along, the game wasn't nearly as developed and I would say consistently professional as it is now. And Barry Bonds, of course, is a very complicated case because the years when he rivals Ruth and Williams were you know, tainted by the, uh, you know, performance enhancing drugs, we have every reason to believe he was taking. And Ted Williams is much less complicated. He was just a pure hitter, you know, a perfect hitter. He did things that throughout his career, you almost can't believe he was able to do in the context of his league. He was one of the best young hitters of all time, maybe one of the two or three best young hitters ever. He was one of the two or three best old hitters ever. And his entire career was pretty much unblemished from an offensive standpoint. I don't know if that necessarily makes him the best baseball player. I think that, you know, there's more to his job than just hitting. And if there is any knock on Ted Williams at all, it's that he wasn't as well-rounded as guys like Willie Mays and and Mike Trout, who 
are also in the conversation for the best player of all time. But just from an offensive standpoint, yeah, I mean, his player page at Baseball Reference is one of the great <laughs> resources on a boring afternoon. You can open it up and find 50 fun facts uh, within about 20 minutes. Right. I mean, in an era where we talk about five-tool players, Ted Williams is a two-tool player, and his defense was such that I mean, it may have been overplayed a little bit how bad his defense was, but supposedly Jimmy Pearsall, one of the talented outfielders, was charged with playing next to him, would sometimes growl at him, if I have to play your position too, at least get out of my way. So Nick Davis, one of the things that complicates the Ted Williams statistical profile is something that, I mean, Ted Williams clearly regarded any moment when he wasn't playing baseball as a tremendous loss to both him and the universe. And there were many moments like this because he was pressed into military service twice. Maybe you can just quickly say a little bit about that. Yeah, he lost um, he lost nearly five years to the two wars, three to World War Two and and, uh, you know, close to two to Korea. And he was not happy about it. I mean, incredibly, he served, and there is this idea of him as this American icon who did sacrifice nearly five years of his career to to the wars, and very few players went to Korea. I mean, Korea especially got under his skin because he hadn't left the reserves, and therefore, when they needed pilots, he was called up, and he was very upset about it and fought it and tried not to go. But, yeah, what would his numbers have been like had he gotten those those nearly five years and, and all kinds of sabermetricians and Sam may know better than I what the predictions would have been and would he have cracked 700 home runs or, you know, hung around to, to uh, get close to Ruth. I do want to point out just something about the film, which is that the film is called Ted Williams, quote, the greatest hitter who ever lived. It is not the film's contention right. that he's the greatest hitter who ever lived. It's that that's what drove him. So, Sam, to that point, I mean, you know, when people are having these kinds of rainy day discussions, they, they try to figure things out, you know, and there are vagaries of fate that can affect somebody's performance. Thurman Munson dies young in a plane crash. Mickey Mantle's knees go out in a way, you know, he just has sort of injury problems that, that inhibit him and limit him. I don't know. There's a way in which, like, having to go fight for your country feels a little bit different from those things, but a little bit the same. How do baseball people talk about this? Well, uh, before I answer that, I, I, you should just note that baseball statistics in general, the ones that kind of are a big part of our lore, are biased against hitters like Ted Williams because so much of Ted Williams' offensive value and genius was his ability to draw walks, get on base, control the strike zone. And when you think about the biggest offensive stats for a hitter in popular culture, they're the they're the triple crown stats, right? Batting average, home runs, and, and RBIs. And you're probably not going to get an RBI when you draw a walk. You're definitely not going to hit a home run when you draw a walk. And really working deep counts to draw walks also puts you in a position to to strike out a little more often. So it has a subtle effect downward on your on your batting average. And those are all things that uh, when we talk about Babe Ruth, you, you point to the home run record or, you know, or the, the incredible RBI totals that, that Lou Gehrig had. And Ted Williams' genius was that he was uncompromising. He, he wanted to help his team score runs. He knew that getting on base was going to do that. He knew that going outside of the strike zone to be more aggressive was going to hurt that. And so even if he had those years that he lost to military service, I think it's probably unlikely that he would have reached the kind of classic statistical heights that we associate with, with guys like Hank Aaron and and Babe Ruth. I think that there's a case to be made that if he'd been at, say, 670 or, or 680 home runs instead of 520, it might have given him the incentive to keep playing an extra couple of years. He was obviously still one of the very best hitters in the world 
when he retired. And if he only needed 35 or 40 more home runs to catch Babe Ruth, uh, perhaps he might have chosen to do that. But to me, the, the real loss from those years from a sort of legacy or, or historical perspective is that you know, the Red Sox were, were really good those years. They were in second place the, the year before he, he went to serve in World War II. They won the American League the year that he came back. I don't know how good that club would have been in those three years, but you can certainly see the case that the Red Sox would not have gone almost a century without a world title if they'd had those three years with Ted Williams in his prime and a very good team competing for the World Series those three years. Actually, when you say the, the, the things you were saying at the beginning, Sam, I'm thinking here in this era where a lot of people look at things like OPS, maybe Ted Williams' numbers would be even better because you do get credit for getting on base. You get like it. I just want to jump in. You get a lot more credit now than you did then. I think it was only with this statistical revolution and the sabermetricians in the 70s and 80s and Bill James and all that where people have re-looked again and thought, God, Williams really was good, and he was right to lay off those pitches. All right. I want to just – there's one thing that even using the more conventional metrics uh, that contributed to things like triple crowns, you can't take away from Ted Williams, so let's hear that. He went into the last day, which was to be a doubleheader, hitting 399.5, which on the books would have been rounded up to 400. So everyone wanted to know, was he going to play or sit it out and take the rounded 400? Joe Cronin, his manager, thought he would bench Williams. Joe Cronin, the manager, says, you can sit if you want. Well, I never give it a thought about not playing. I knew I was going to play, and there's no doubt about it. He was going to earn it. He wasn't going to let some statistician round off a number to make it 400. Well, as I got up the home plate the first time up during the day, Bill McGrown, one of the truly great umpires that's ever been in this game, he called time, and he turned his back towards the stands, and he started rushing home plate. And he said, in order to hit 400, he says, you got to be loose. you got to be loose. And he wiped the plate off and went back. And the catcher said, Mr. Mack says not to give you anything, but he told us to pitch to you today. And he went six for eight on the day. And raised the batting average to 406. That's a man's man thing to do. In the locker room after the game, Ted turned to the clubhouse boy, Johnny Orlando. You know, he said, I'm a pretty good hitter. If that sounds like John Hamm at the end. That's it, is it is John, John Hamm. Hamm. <laughs> uh-huh. So, Sam, I kind of already know what your take on this whole hitting 400 thing is because you're on the record about it. So tell us what you think of this feat and the likelihood of it being equaled. Well, it will never be. There is, there is virtually no chance that anybody will ever hit 400 again unless the game changes in such a way that it's almost unrecognizable to the game that we have been playing for the last six decades. Records are, are, you know, they're tied to the era they're played in. And when you look at what baseball was like in the 1920s and 1930s, there were just so much fewer strikeouts than there are now. And some people might say, well, hitters, hitters were better contact hitters back then. But really, it's that pitchers pitch for strikeouts. Pitchers are, are throwing much harder. They, there are many more relievers coming in throwing 100 miles an hour. And even the extreme contact outliers are striking out four and five times as much as the, the contact hitters of that era. And if you look at batting average as a pretty simple mathematical equation between how often you strike out and make an out, how often you hit a home run and get a hit, and then what percentage of balls that you hit in the field of play uh, land safely, you add all these strikeouts that we have today, and the math becomes virtually impossible. Nobody's really come close in an extremely long time, and uh, the, the trend is just going more and more. I, 
so it's basically it's basically impossible. And that might seem like in some ways it diminishes what Ted Williams did because it ties his accomplishment to his era. And that's probably fair. That's probably true. I mean, I don't think Ted Williams' greatest offensive achievement is that batting average. I think it's his career on base percentage, which is to me a lot more Im- impressive. But but even at the time, it was almost impossible to hit 400. There were, I think, nine 400 hitters between 1920 and 1930. And after that, the game had already started to change. And there wasn't another one until Ted did it in 1941. And so he was already a, a real outlier in his season. is remarkable. And when you look at what he did that year, he hit 37 home runs and struck out 27 times, which is just <laughs> unthinkable uh, in this day and age. Well, it was unthinkable in that day and age, too. So <laughs> that probably speaks to how out of out of time he was. You know, Nick, it's really kind of wrong in an oddly almost, you know, theological way to say anybody's like Ted Williams. But there's somebody in your documentary who is used as a Ted Williams simulator. Uh, and you there was an instinct to maybe protect this guy, right, from those comparisons. Yes, there 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 was. I mean, we we wanted to use some very tasteful and almost hidden recreations. And I think a lot of people who've seen the film will talk about the recreations afterwards and they say, "What recreations?" I didn't catch that. But we do some super slow motion, you know, high speed, 2,000 frames a second stuff where we have a hitter in a number nine Red Sox uniform, vintage away uniform from 1941 and home uniform from the 50s, swinging a bat. And it's a gorgeous left-handed swing and you don't see the face or anything. But yeah, we we did a major search to try and find someone. And, and you know, you think about great left-handed hitters like Ben Attendee or, or whoever, and you'd think, oh, this guy reminds me of Williams. And then you look at them side by side and think, no, that that's not right. But there was a kid in the farm system of the Houston Astros at the time, and we were sent his swing, and we thought, look, he's in the minors, but he's got a great swing. It doesn't matter if he's actually a good hitter. He just needs to look like a good hitter. <laughs> and reached out to him, and they said, yes, sure, you can do it. And so we filmed these recreations with this kid under the strict instructions Sure, you can do it, but you can't name him because you don't want anybody saddled with that. As you were just saying, you don't want anyone coming up. And as a Mets fan, I can tell you when the black Ted Williams arrived in the in the form of Daryl Strawberry, it was tremendous pressure to put on a young man. And, and Strawberry didn't exactly rise to the occasion ultimately. But anyway, we got this guy. And, and then the Astros in spring training just started calling him Ted because of the way he looked. <laughs> and they didn't know that we'd done this film. Anyway, kid's name is Kyle Tucker. And uh, so now he's playing left field. For and them. he's been outed, too. All right. Uh, so thanks to uh, Sam Miller, a national baseball writer at ESPN, Nick Davis, producer and director of Ted Williams, quote, the greatest hitter who ever lived, close quote. We'll be back to talk about Moxie, which is a big part of the story, as far as I'm concerned. Can you catch? Will you hold? The ball when you step to the plate when you swing and fall if you play you gotta know how it's done can you catch can you hold a hot one? Katie Tularski is running the board today that's like having Ted Williams I don't know hit batting practice for your American Legion team or something like that but she's like the big boss of everything here but she's running the board Jonathan McNichol is the guy who produced this show Jason Parra is our terrific intern is helping out as well right now we're talking about Ted Williams with Nick Davis who produced and directed the Ted Williams documentary so very quickly one of the things that Ted also did was he was for a while an advertising spokesperson for a drink that's the perfect New England drink just in the same way that Ted Williams although he was from California California had this kind of perfection for the unflinching, non-truckling, uncompromising, flinty character of New England. Moxie is the perfect drink for New England because it doesn't really exactly taste 
particularly great. But there's something about it that's very New Englandy. And my grandmother loved Ted Williams, and she loved Moxie. So Jim Balmer is the Maine-based writer and author of Moxie, Maine in a Bottle. Jim Balmer, we don't have a lot of time here, but it would be good to talk about the quickly about the origins of Moxie. We have to go back to General Augustin Thompson, do we not? Dr. Augustin yeah, Thompson. But- yeah, well, thanks for having me on. A great show so far. Uh, yeah, Thompson was actually from Maine. He was born in Maine, but he actually invented the drink when he moved to Massachusetts. So certainly a New England drink, it gets, you know, attached to Maine, but it's safer to say it's definitely a New England-based drink. And, and we should say that back in those days, uh, this is sort of right after the, shortly after the Civil War, um, drinks of this kind were usually kind of marketed as kind of medicinal tonics. This one was supposed to prevent softening of the brain and loss of manhood and all kinds of other problems that people might have been having. But it, it became incredibly popular by the 1920s. I think it's for a while outselling Coca-Cola. And so can you just quickly say, talk about the advertising of the drink, because that's a, one of the reasons it was outselling Coca-Cola. They were very creative about marketing. Yeah, so there was a guy named Frank Archer who really was a marketing genius behind Moxie. Without Frank Archer, there would not be a Moxie today. You know, he would have been the Ted Williams of marketing, so to speak. And, you know, as he sort of phased out at the end of his life, which is pre-World War II, you know, Moxie really began to languish. So Moxie went from being a soft drink, probably close in proximity to Coca-Cola and Pepsi in popularity, and then after World War II, you know, they really struggled. And part of it was Archer was out of the picture. They had no real clue on how to market the drink and then latched on to Ted Williams in the middle 50s. But they even had a hard time deciding whether or not to pull the trigger on, you know, signing Ted up. And, you know, he was being paid next to nothing. I mean, they paid him $1,000 a year, which is, what, about $10,000 in today's money, with stock options and with a company that was – Really, some people thought it was going down the tubes. Well, fortunately, it didn't. But Archer really had a lot to do with the, the staying power, the marketing and all of the different things they used to, to promote it, you know, the board games, the, the memorabilia, which is very popular and things like that. Yes, I've been to conventions where the memorabilia is being bought and sold and traded for, and it's uh, there's an awful lot of it. You know, we're going to have to stop the conversation there. I wish we had more time, but there really is a way in which Ted Williams was the perfect spokesman for Moxie. Both things combining the bitter with the sweet, and both things very specifically styled to the tastes of New England, and maybe less popular with a less forgiving larger American public, less forgiving of irascible baseball players, and less forgiving of somewhat bitter-tasting soft drinks. So there's some lovely parallels there. Nick Davis, thank you for stopping here on your way to Boston. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. And and we I really can't encourage you enough, even if you are baseball phobic, to uh, try watching this documentary. You're going to meet a person who's so much more complicated than baseball itself. We didn't even get into things like fishing, which probably you're not a fan of either if you don't like baseball. But uh, <laughs> just to say whatever he tried to do, he did it with a particular kind of intensity you, you don't see anywhere else. Other keep trying, you're so satisfying. There's nothing like much before.